0: I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month,
1: If you were to die tonight, where would you go? Bible. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Pearly gates and streets of gold. Tomorrow I'm officiating at a funeral. Should I say he is in a better place? This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. He ascended into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of God, says the creed. The kingdom of heaven is among you and is forcefully advancing, said Jesus. In mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright, we sing. Heaven and earth shall pass away, said Jesus. God's temple in heaven, says the book of Revelation. A few weeks ago, somebody asked me after the service if I would preach on heaven for the sake of our seniors who are getting closer to the end of life and need to be reminded of the hope of heaven. Truth is, all of us are pretty close to death and don't know it, maybe even today, even if you're not a senior. But heaven has been a part of Christian belief right from the beginning, and it should be thought about and taught about For that reason alone. So I began to go through the scriptures to find those texts that would shed light on the subject of heaven. Also did a little outside reading. And it became pretty clear, pretty quickly to me, that to teach on heaven is no easy task. Partially because the scripture actually says so very little about it. Partially because the Bible uses the word heaven in several different but overlapping ways. Partially because the doctrine of heaven is so intertwined with other elements of Christian belief and doctrine, like Jesus' return, the so-called rapture, the reality of angels. It's difficult because in the church, historically, we have been handed down so many images and concepts that we've come to take for granted that we don't often stop and think critically about them. Where Where do they come from? It's difficult because even pop culture has informed us or given us images that we've come to associate with heaven. Now some things of course we can dismiss out of hand images of harps, clouds, halos, wings, everyone walking around in white tunics. Some things we do know heaven as our eternal destiny is not only real it is concrete it's physical it's not merely spiritual. We will have bodies Jesus himself was resurrected physically and ascended into heaven. The Bible takes great pains to remind us that his resurrection was a physical one. But quite frankly, the more that I thought about and came to understand a little bit about heaven, the more I realized how much I don't know. The more I realize what the Bible doesn't tell us about heaven. For example, is it the goal of Christians to go to heaven? Will heaven bear any resemblance to earth at all? Is heaven just the good things of earth, augmented, better food, better music? You can play soccer and eat Nanaimo bars all the time. What age will everyone be? Will there be children and adults? If someone died as an infant, what will they be in heaven? Will God have created a whole new set of animals? Will ladybugs live forever? If there's no suffering, what mosquitoes will find to do? <laughs> will fat people be trim and anemic people filled out? Is there a perfect age and weight that we will all be? Will we be praising God eternally at His throne? Or can we paint and build houses, play team sports? Can we garden, and if we garden, will our plants will? Will they need weeding? If we do play sports, is it possible to lose? Are we allowed to tackle and body check? How complete will our knowledge be? Will there still be things to learn, opportunities for personal growth? Will we suddenly know all kinds of things, like how to play the violin? My brother had a hockey injury once and went into the hospital. And before his surgery, he asked the doctor, When it's over, will I be able to play the piano? And the doctor says, I don't see any reason why not. And my brother said, that's good because I can't play it now. (laughs) Some of these questions that I've just asked might be a little tongue-in-cheek, but you know what? None of them are silly. They all arise from a genuine wondering about heaven and the nature of heaven. And the Bible is silent on a lot of this stuff. On some of them, we can make intelligent guesses based on what the Bible does say, but heaven though, for the most part, is still a mystery. The ultimate questions about heaven though are, if heaven represents the final hope of the follower of Jesus, what is the nature of that hope? What are we hoping for? So I want to talk a little bit about heaven with you today, and I'm going to start just by looking at the word heaven and how the Bible uses it. The word that is translated heaven shows up over 400 times in the Bible and then heavens and heavenly another 200 plus times. Sometimes it just means the air, a creation. God created the birds of the air. and The word is heaven. At the, fl- at the flood, the floodgates of the heavens were opened and it rained. Sometimes heaven, or the heavens, means what appears to be the sky in a broader sense than simply the air up there. The heavens is the place where the moon and the stars and the sun are. So in both of these, the the heavens are the realm just above the ground, the earth, or simply up. Abraham lifted up his eyes to heaven, just means he looked up. Heaven is also sometimes paired with earth to represent all of the created order. Heaven and earth shall pass away, a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus descended to the earth and ascended far above the heavens, as in he is Lord over all creation. God made heaven and earth. Heaven might be the opposite of the material world, Hebrews 11's heavenly city versus earth. The kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of this world. The word is used metaphorically in the same way that we might use the word up. Moving up in the world means achieving a higher status. Moving up a grade doesn't mean your classroom is on another floor. So in Isaiah 14, for example, the mockery of the king of Babylon talks about him falling from heaven to the grave. From the CEO's office to the starving and homeless person. But then it goes on to say that the king's ambition had been to ascend into heaven and make his throne like God's, if not greater. So his fall from heaven to the grave is parallel to or symbolic of his spiritual fall from wanting to ascend to the place of God and descending into the place of the dead. And then, of course, as you most often think about it, heaven is very specifically the abode of God. It is where God is. It's the location of his throne. Psalm chapter 11, the Lord's throne is in heaven. Revelation chapter 4, a throne in heaven. We pray our Father in heaven. So it's hard sometimes to tell what meaning is intended with the word heaven or if there's more than one. In Revelation, John sees a door open in heaven probably he's looking up and seeing a vision unfold before him, much like Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel chapter 1. But he also sees into heaven, sees the throne of God in heaven. So a door opened in heaven, but a door opens so that he can see in heaven. So it's difficult to know when a sentence or a whole passage might be referring to capital H, heaven, or just the air above the ground. And because it's difficult, it's difficult to know what we're assuming if that's right. If it's the right picture, if our understanding is correct. Things that may or may not be biblical when we think about heaven. So the air above the ground, the sky higher above, the heavens where the sun, moon, and stars live. Heaven with earth, representing all of creation, the spiritual realm realm of angels and God's kingdom, the specific space where God is on the throne, metaphorically the height of power or position, heaven, the heavens. And then you can add to that, by the way, the occasional passage where heaven is not even mentioned, but we've traditionally thought referred to heaven. The best known is probably John chapter 14. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you and will come again to take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. The word heaven doesn't even show up, but we think of it in terms of heaven, and I think rightly so. Paul makes this cryptic comment that I'm not going to even deal with today because I haven't got a clue what he means, about being taken up to the third heaven. Does anyone know what that means, by the way? Let me know after the service. So is it even possible to begin to feel our way through the fog and at least get some clarity about heaven? Well, to a certain degree, there is. As I said, heaven, in terms of our eternal destination, is very much a mystery, biblically. Apparently, God doesn't think we need to know it very much. But we know some. And as I walk through this today, some of you will notice that that there are three interwoven threads here as we go. The Bible's use of the metaphor of a city, it talks about heaven. Heaven as the throne room or explicit presence of God. And the idea of heaven coming down to earth and not our going up to heaven. It was interesting to me this week that some of the assumptions I made about certain passages had to be rethought by me in light of the reality in which Paul was writing i'll give you two examples the first is philippians 3 and verse 20 the other is first thessalonians 4 in philippians 3 verse 20 paul writes this our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ we don't belong on earth we are resident aliens expats This is a temporary place for us, but heaven is the home to which we will return. That's what I always thought of this verse. Philippi had been given official status as a Roman colony, and its inhabitants were citizens of Rome. Philippi was their home. And though they were part of the Roman Empire, by which Rome, of course, was the center and which to define their identity as citizens, none of them in Philippi would have assumed that they would, as citizens of Rome, eventually go and live in Rome. What it did mean, though, was that as citizens of Rome, it was incumbent on them to live in a manner befitting their status as citizens of Rome. So for God's people, then, as citizens of heaven we live in a manner befitting that reality. And as you read through Philippians, we know that this living as citizens of heaven includes humility, commitment to unity in the work of the gospel, generosity and joy, and so on. And sometimes, very rarely, maybe once in a person's lifetime, the emperor might come to the city. And when that happened, it was big news. When the queen comes to Canada, it's a big event. In Canada... Canadians eagerly await her arrival but we don't expect that she's going to take us back with her to Buckingham Palace to live but this is the reality this is the understanding to which Paul was writing and the understanding that the Philippians would have had when they read this letter now does this mean that heaven is not our home and that we won't go there well I'm not ready to say that at this point but we can say with a lot of confidence that this is not what Paul is talking about when he writes these words. That's the first. The second is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul writes this. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ, hopefully that's not Baptists, will rise first, then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And this text reminds us of a custom of the day and something that we also see, by the way, in the Gospels, also with Jesus. If a visiting personage, dignitary, emperor, was coming into a city, a delegation from the city would go out to meet him and escort him back To the city. At Jesus' triumphal entry, this is what we see Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, surrounded by crowds who are coming into Jerusalem with him and who are shouting about the king. John's gospel records this detail. The next day, the large crowd that had gathered for the feast have come to Jerusalem for the Passover heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A crowd comes with Jesus, a crowd from Jerusalem comes to meet him, and with great pomp and celebration, they return to the city. First Thessalonians, Jesus will come, we will rise to meet him in the air, then what? We will always be with the Lord, whatever then what will be. The question is where? Will we meet Jesus in the air and then he'll turn around and bring us all home? I think that what Paul is writing would not have been understood that way by his readers. 1 Thessalonians implies that when Jesus comes, Jesus comes and remains. The Philippians image is that as citizens of heaven doesn't necessarily imply that it's a place to which we will eventually go. Now, I know that that challenges some of our, uh, my assumptions and your assumptions about heaven, but stick with me here for a few moments, because the Bible has another and very significant picture to offer us. The Greek word for citizen, as it does in English, comes from the word city. Now... Give me a couple of moments with this. Hebrews chapter 11 describes the obedient faith of Abraham. God had called him, Genesis 12, to leave his homeland and go to a place that God would show him. Abraham didn't know where this was, but he trusted God's word, and God did bring him to a land of promise. A land that he then swore to give to Abraham's descendants. Abraham was not established in the land. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and then Jacob. The only real estate that Abraham owned at his death was the gravesite of his wife, Sarah. But Abraham's coming to and living in the land was the outworking of his faith in God's character and God's word. Abraham's faith that God was working out his promise, the end of which Abraham could not see. And then Hebrews 11 says, By faith he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as uh, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, that is not a transient dwelling like a tent, that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. And a few verses later, they desire a better country, a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called, called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Similar language to John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. God has prepared for them a city. Now to the scripture passage that we have just read. It's from that passage that we get so much of our imagery about heaven. That's where we read about streets of gold, of gates made of pearl, the elimination of pain and sorrow and death, the river of life, the throne of God and of Jesus. Look how that whole passage begins. And I'll throw in some comments as we go. It begins in the beginning of chapter 21 and goes through uh, part of chapter 22, which is the, the end part is what we read today. Chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So this means uh, a new creation, heaven and earth, a whole new creation, because God's not going to recreate his throne. By the way, the reference to no more sea means no more evil. The sea was a metaphor um, in the scripture often for the chaos of evil. The beast comes out of the sea, for example. But that's a longer subject. Then we read, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. So I think John is looking into heaven and seeing the holy city come down out of heaven. Coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay. Hebrews 12 speaks of the new Jerusalem as a heavenly city where God and his angels and people are. Galatians 4, the new Jerusalem is the heavenly perfect counterpart to the earthly, still enslaved to sin, Jerusalem. And Back to Revelation 21. I love this stuff, by the way. How scripture interweaves. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Jesus, John is seeing God coming down. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. No more will there be any mourning or crying or pain. And then it goes on from there to describe that city, pearly gates, streets of gold, and so on. So here we have a heavenly city coming down, and God now dwelling with and among his people. I mean, this vision of John is incredible. A new creation, a new earth. There will be an earth in God's place coming down to be with his people. It's a very different picture than what we often have in mind and what I've often had in mind. But it squares with Philippians. We are citizens of that city. It squares with Thessalonians. Jesus will come and will meet him in the air in return, squares with John 14, Jesus goes to prepare a place for us, a city prepared for his people, and Jesus will come again and take us to himself, to his throne room, as in elsewhere in Revelation, and will dwell with us. Where we are, God will come and dwell among us. Where he is, we will also be. Citizens of his city, his city coming to us. It's really quite beautiful. And those who have died in Christ are with the Lord. And Jesus will come with his holy ones. And we who are still alive will meet him in the air. And we are together living in a new creation for eternity. Indulge me for one more thing yet. The stage for this picture is set in the Old Testament. At Mount Sinai, God, whose glory no one could approach makes provision for his people. A tabernacle is built, and the Ark of the Covenant is placed in the Holy of Holies. Now the Ark was built like a throne, a chair, with the wings of the angels forming a kind of seat, the mercy seat, sometimes called. And that was the place where God would come and dwell. That was the place that if somebody asked the Israelites, where is your God? They would point and say, in there. But when the tabernacle was finished, end of Exodus, chapter 40, you can read it, God's glory comes and fills the tabernacle to such an extent that even Moses, who was on the mountain with God, could not go in. Even God's glory exhibited a little more fully even than on the mountain. Moses could not approach it or face it. He needed a a sequel to the book of Exodus. John chapter 1, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the Father, became flesh and dwelled among us. The word that John uses is the word tabernacled. But men couldn't handle his glory and killed him. Jesus rose, ascended again to the throne of God. A sequel is needed. And now, finally, we see the final chapter, God's glory made flesh in a physically resurrected and ascended Jesus, comes again to dwell among men. Now some of my questions don't seem as obscure to me anymore. On a new earth, in physical and resurrected bodies, we will not be on our faces before God's throne forever. We will, I think, have an earth to live on, to walk around on, homes in which to live, things to do, maybe lions and lambs as pets, maybe sports to be played and instruments to learn, like the electric harp, which I would love to learn. All the while, underneath the dome of God's glory, which we will, in some way I can't imagine, be able to see and be able to interact with God physically and perfectly. And that's where the picture, of, the picture in the scripture doesn't let us see beyond that. I have no idea what that will be like. This, to me, is what heaven is in terms of the eternity of God's people. This is what it will be. There is still, of course, infinitely more that we haven't got a clue about, but we do know that the reality will be far better, greater, infinitely so than the picture that Scripture allows us to see. But for those who have surrendered to Jesus, this is the promise. This is is for us. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to speak on the subject of hell. Because it also needs to be understood a little more clearly, beyond the images that the Bible gives us. But to put it as succinctly as possible, hell is eternal separation from God. Heaven is eternally dwelling with God. It's not that God sends people to hell, just because they aren't Christians And don't believe in Jesus. Jesus in a mysterious trinity made up of the Father and Son and Spirit is God. So God doesn't send people anywhere. He gives what they've chosen. If they've chosen to snub or ignore or reject God. Or God has he really is. Which of course is Jesus in that picture. Why will they want to be with him then? If they choose separation they'll have separation. Separation. Those who by grace have given their lives to Jesus, Jesus will give them life and they will be with him. So you'll hear more about that in a couple of weeks. Now, there's been a lot of stuff this morning and so far it's been nothing more than an informational lecture on heaven. And at that, it's just a sketching of a few lines that needs more sketching, let alone the filling in of the shapes, let alone adding color. But as we so often ask on Sunday mornings, why does this matter now? Why does some reality in the who knows how far away future mean anything before it happens? Well, interestingly and even surprisingly, it matters because even in the midst of the things we don't know, the things that we've always known are still true and have even more meaning. First, this whole idea of new bodies got an email from Chris Swanberg this morning about 8.30. Uh, Doris's grandmother, Elsbeth, who is turning 99 in just a few weeks. Many of you know that she fell and broke her hip some time ago and has been in the hospital. She's just been transferred to the Care West Center um, by the Rocky View Hospital. So some of you might need to jot that down. And the hope is that while she's there, she'll recover enough to be able to return to her assisted living complex where she was before. But either way, even before she fell, she was weak and she was slow. And I wrote down here, Actually, for someone born in the year that World War I began, she looks remarkably well, which is true. Yesterday afternoon, I met with a man who is the father of somebody whose funeral I'm going to conduct uh, tomorrow. Somebody connected with Renfrew Baptist Church. And this man shuffles when he walks and is bent over at an almost 90-degree angle and leans heavily on his cane. Now, what kind of hope do you think the idea of a resurrected body gives to them? No matter where it is or what it looks like. What happens so much more to them is the ability not only to walk but to walk upright and to jump, to carry children on their backs, to bend over without fear of not getting up again and climb maybe three stairs at a time. There is hope. And not just at a physical level. Some of you here today might hear this and love the fact that it will not always be this way. Arthritis, dizziness, aging. But it's not just physical. Depression, fear, guilt, loneliness, gone. Life and joy and community and freedom. So, does the Bible's picture of heaven, painted as it is, does it matter today? Absolutely, it certainly does. But more than that, though, the essential nature of heaven is the presence of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in a way that is, as of now, unfathomable to us. But the bottom line the hunger of the heart will be satisfied. And even those of us who have been Christians for decades know the meaning of that. In fact, we might know it better than most. The hungry person who has never known that something like food even exists will not be conscious of the reality of hunger as such, and as much as the person who has tasted food before knows what it means to be hungry. Somebody who can smell the food, but can't reach it. Have you ever been frustrated by the experience that you don't know God very well? That after all of this time, you're still hungry, that your relationship with him seems weak? I certainly have. But could it be that this demonstrates a faith that is not yet, but will be, sight? That there's a longing that is yet to be fulfilled, absolutely. Could it be that this does not demonstrate spiritual weakness, but spiritual health? Because spiritual health is not perfection, it's a longing after God. You could define spiritual health as that. And somebody who never feels frustration or dissatisfaction spiritually might not have faith at all, I would say. So longing fulfilled in the presence and interaction with God, far beyond what we even realize our longing is. An end to pain, physical and otherwise. That's why heaven, in spite all that we don't know, matters. We've just come out of the Good Friday and Easter season and celebration. And it was just hours before Jesus' arrest that he said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you and will return. And I've often thought of Jesus going to prepare a place, his going as his ascension. But his going from them began, I think, that very night. He was taken, he was arrested, tried, convicted, crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day he rose from the dead, then he ascended into heaven. And it was not just when he got to heaven that he began his work, that he died at night and showed up for work in the morning. It was on the cross that Jesus was preparing a place for us. We are sinners and could not possibly go to a place that God calls home. Our very approach would see us incinerated by God's holiness before we could even begin to catch a glimpse of where he is. But on the cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself, died with it, and we carry it no more. And now the place is not just a place, but it is a place for us. We can end up there with God. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead There is a wall that cannot be overcome. God is on the other side, and we can catch a whiff of the baking, and we so want to eat. We know that life is there, but we come to the end of our allotted weeks or years. For some, never learning even to breathe on our own. For others, losing things one at a time. The ability to move and walk and think and feel, travel. Jesus hit the wall when he was way too young, by the way, barely 33, in his prime. But he died, and he rose again, never to die again, alive on the other side of the wall. And God has said, you share in his resurrection. And Jesus is preparing a place where there will be no more death, no wall, but life abundant and everlasting. Jesus has prepared a place for us, and he has prepared us for that place. He'll take us through the wall, if you will, or dismantle the wall at the end of it all. Heaven, however we'll finally experience it, will be with God. That's what makes it heaven. But that it is a place for us is because of what God has done for us in Jesus, by Jesus, and through Jesus. The preparation is all His, it's purely a matter of grace. And because we will see Him and be able to worship Him as never before in song and in our just living and relationships, heaven is also for God. And He includes us, that where He is, we may also be his place prepared for us our presence with him for our joy our new life for his glory i'm not sure that i need to know more about heaven than that i don't need to know what third heaven means one is enough for me let us pray much less not understanding heaven. I don't even understand sin and forgiveness. I don't know how bad I was. I don't know how much you have forgiven. I do not know how much grace beyond the fact that I know it's amazing. So how could we possibly understand the things that you haven't told us very much about? But I thank you that there is a pull. And I thank you that you have created a place in that you will dwell with us forever, which is the very thing, the only thing that we want. So thank you for that. We want to keep our hearts hungry. We don't want to be so consumed as I so often am with the things of earth, even the things of ministry that we lose sight of the reality of the perfect, beautiful future. And as we live here, we want to keep an eye on what you are doing. So continue to prepare us for your place. We now will remember the astonishing truth that all of this becomes meaningful to us because of a death It took place a long time ago in a land far from us. But to pray the gospel that you sent your son, your eternal son, to die for our sins. To live that we might live. That he might draw us to himself. That is life right there. Thank you for that. As we celebrate it, we will do it soberly with great joy. This becomes for us an act of worship. Please receive it as such from your people. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare for this... Um, we're going to sing the astonishing reality that our king died for us. You'll find it in your hymnals. and I just need to turn my bulletin upside down to find the number. It is number 61, and can it be, really, could it be, that our king would die for us? So let's stand and sing that.